Hello and welcome to the Free Life Community Church Podcast. My name is John DeLille, and I'm the communications guy at Free Life Community Church in Terre Haute, Indiana. Each week, Senior Pastor Dan Willis brings a rich, detailed, and relevant message grounded in Scripture, which is recorded on Sunday mornings and made available for you right here. You can find more messages at freelifecc.com or in the Google Play and iTunes podcast app. Hey, if you've benefited from listening to these messages, we ask that you try to help us out. You can help us out in two different ways. First, you can give us a rating in the app store that you use. Secondly, share this podcast with a family member, a friend, or a colleague. This really does help us to get these messages into the hands of the people who can really benefit from them. All right, without further ado, here's Senior Pastor Dan Willis. To those of you listening online in our Mecca campus and those of you on the radio today, what a glorious day it is in the life of a Christian. Thank you. Somebody heard that and responded appropriately. Stunning. I'm excited today. Pastor Bob, thank you, thank you, thank you so much for putting this book in my hands. This is called Until Unity by Francis Chan, who is a brilliant speaker, brilliant Christian, brilliant author. Uh, We are going to do this. I started reading it, and I cannot put it down. We're going to do this. It's going to cost us a couple thousand dollars to buy everybody in both campuses this book and the workbook that goes with it because I don't care if you're in a small group. I don't care if you want to do it as a couple. I don't care if you want to do it in a Sunday school class. We will create whatever opportunity you need for every single person in our campuses to go through this. It is so incredible. I am going to make it a requirement to go through it before you become a member in our church. <laughs> What's it called? Until unity. And let me give you just a little bit here. It's what the Trinity wants. It's what you want. It's what the world wants. Or no, it's what the world needs. I'm sorry. It starts with repentance. It comes with maturity. It survives with love. It requires a fight. It must start small and a return to childlike faith. This is insane. He says in here that nothing you will do today is more important than you to worship God. Doesn't he? I can't put this thing down. It's easy to read. It's tremendous. It's amazing. And every Christian ought to read it. Every Christian. Probably more than once. We're going to do it. So be prepared. I haven't even had a chance to talk to Mandy about that yet. But we're going to do it. (laughs) And it doesn't have to be in a small group. So we're going to do it. Okay? Everybody is going to do it. And if you don't do it, I'm going to come to your house and ask you why. I'm, I'm not kidding. I am not kidding. Because my question is, why wouldn't you want to grow in your faith and in unity of the church with God? Why wouldn't you? It is so simple. Even our teenagers can do it. That's a fact. Even our elementary kids can get it in some form. And it comes with a workbook. We can get that. They're like eight bucks a piece, I think. And there's a 12 to 15 minute video. There is. Every chapter. Every chapter, yeah. We are going to do this. Do you think we should, everybody, do this? The consensus in my Tuesday night group starting it was amazing. Everybody's got to do it. One yeah. One of the guys walked in and said, yeah. you know, he says, I realize we're starting that book next week, but I've already done the entire book in the workbook. That's just, I you can't put it down. Oh, no. You can't put it down. We're going to do it. Okay, so I'm telling you right now, I'm putting you on notice. You will get a visit. <laughs> okay, we're going to do it. And you can run, but you can't hide. Even if you close the door, I know you're looking through the blind. Okay, anyway, welcome to our services today. Big message today, and, and I need you to do something for me. Uh, this message possibly could be, in my opinion, the most powerful message I've ever, I've ever put together. And God, and of course, I think that I've thought that before. But this, this one, I love this message. I love what God has to say here. Not my ability, not what, but what God has to say. And so I really need you to do something for me today. Please be attentive. Please pay attention. Please don't look around, horse around your phones. Please don't get up and go to the restroom. Please don't leave the service. Please don't leave the sanctuary. Please listen, because God wants to speak to us. And this message is entitled... Living outside your comfort zone, and it's based on Elijah, and it is serving with loyalty. 
serving with loyalty. And if you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 18, 40 verses here. I'm sorry, I can't break it up. I can't make it smaller. It can't be done. It's a long message. It's a big message. I understand that. But don't worry about the time. It's not important. It's just not important. Uh, you, you are going to be able to go next door and eat. I pray that you will. Uh, we've invited our Mecca campus to come and be with us. It's cheap. It really is cheap to eat what you're going to get today. Uh, and, and your children, if they're elementary, they're, it's two bucks. If they're under elementary age, they're free. So everybody can afford it, and you can. I'll pay for you. Okay? So it's a fundraiser, yeah, but we want you to be with us, and we're going to eat together. You don't have to go to any restaurants. You don't have to run here and there. You don't have to go home. Listen. We'll even delay if Mecca's coming down to join us, whatever. Okay? The fact is, attention. Chapter 18, verse 1. After a long time in the third year, the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Go and present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the land. Now, you remember, Elijah went, or he presented himself and said, Look, buddy, uh, rain's not going to come on the land until I say so. Yeah, I, I think the king pretty much hated him at that point. And so Elijah went to present himself to Ahab. Now, I, I have to tell you, if the king hated me and I told him it wasn't going to rain until I say so, and then it happened, you know, the only reason the king didn't kill him right then, well, because God wouldn't allow it, but two, because the king probably thought, well, you, you can't determine whether it rains or not, so I don't, I'm not worried. But now he's worried because it hasn't rained. And so for Elijah to show up, <laughs> probably not the safest thing to do. And so it says, Now the famine was severe in Samaria, and Ahab had summoned Obadiah, who was in charge of his palace, and Obadiah was a devout believer in the Lord, while Jezebel was killing off the Lord's prophets. We know, who's Elijah? Well, he's a prophet of the Lord. And she's killing them all off. And God says, go present yourself. And so Obadiah had taken 100 prophets and hidden them in two caves, 50 in each, and had supplied them with food and water. And Ahab said to Obadiah, go through the land to all the springs and valleys. Maybe we can find some grass to keep the horses and mules alive so that we will not have to kill any of our animals. And so they divided the land they were to cover, Ahab going in one direction, Obadiah in another. And as Obadiah was walking along, Elijah met him. Obadiah recognized him, bowed down to the ground and said, is it really you, my lord, Elijah? Yes, he replied, go tell your master, Elijah is here. <laughs> and Obadiah's like, I can't be associated with you. Are you crazy? He wants to kill you. I'm not going to even mention to you that I saw you. I'm not going to tell him anything. And here's what he says. What have I done wrong, Obadiah? that you are handing your servant over to Ahab to be put to death. As surely as the Lord your God lives, there is not a nation or kingdom where my master has not sent someone to look for you. And whenever a nation or kingdom claimed you were not there, he made them swear they could not find you. But now you tell me to go to my master and say, Elijah is here. I don't know where the spirit of the Lord may carry you when I leave you. If I go and tell Ahab and he doesn't find you, he's going to kill me. Yet I, your servant, have worshipped the Lord since my youth. Haven't you heard, my Lord, what I did while Jezebel was killing the prophets of the Lord? I hid a hundred of the Lord's prophets in two caves, 50 in each, and I supplied them with food and water. And, of course, I'm the king's servant. I run his palace. That's probably a bad idea. Now, you tell me to go to my master and say, Elijah is here. He's going to kill me. Elijah said, as the Lord Almighty lives. In other words, I don't care what you think. I will present myself to Ahab today. Can you see the wind go out of Obadiah's sails? He's like, this is not good. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab, and he told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. When he saw Elijah, he said to him, Is that you, troubler of Israel? I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. <laughs> I don't think right now Elijah is thinking too much about his survival rate. <laughs> you have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 
prophets or pastors or whatever you want to call it of Baal, who's a false god, and bring 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. 800 plus of these guys. Okay? And so Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets of Mount Carmel. Probably pretty dumb on Ahab's part, but he does it anyway. So Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, well, then follow him. But the people, get this, said nothing. <laughs> kind of reminds me of today. And so Elijah said to them, I'm the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bowls for us. Let them choose one for themselves. Let them cut it into pieces, put it on the wood, but not set it on fire. I will prepare the other bowl, put it on the wood, but not set it on fire. So he's got 450 guys to cut this one bowl up while he does one by himself. Doesn't even get any help. Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, well, then he's going to be God. And all the people said, what you say, that's a good plan. Because what are they thinking? No, they're not thinking anything. They're thinking, so we'll just wait and see what happens. And whichever one throws the fire, well, that's kind of obvious. So, in other words, they're playing the fence. Kind of like we do today, yeah. People are going to see who's God, I'm telling you. It might not be today. But it will come. Who believes me? And Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, okay, <laughs> choose one of the bulls, prepare it first, since there are many of you. Call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bull given them, and they prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning until noon. O Baal, answer us, they shouted, but there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them, shout louder. Surely he's a god. Maybe he's deep in thought. Maybe he's busy or maybe he's traveling. I'm thinking, maybe he's just out to lunch. <laughs> maybe he's sleeping. And maybe you have to wake him up. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until their blood flowed. Hmm. I'm thinking, I'm not liking this god too much. Midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. And Elijah said to the people, come here to me. And so they came to him. Because the people were like, hmm, what's going on here? You know, that didn't work, so maybe we ought to kind of fly in this direction a little bit. Hey, man. Nothing happened over there. They're not sure yet. So they came to him and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which was in ruins. The altar of the Lord's in ruins? Why? Because they're not using it. Huh? Who are they, who are they following? Either Baal or nobody. They certainly have been led to, lead, to lead, go after Baal. So Elijah took 12 stones. Kind of makes you understand why the largest church in the Western church is called 12 stone. That's where it comes from. Took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Your name shall be Israel. With the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it large enough to hold two seahs of seed. That's a lot. He arranged the wood, cut the bull into pieces, laid it on the wood. He said to them, Fill four large jars with water, pour it on the offering and on the wood. And so they did it. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it a third time. The water ran down the altar and even filled the trench. Friends, water and fire don't mix, especially if you have three big trench, you know, a trench filled with it and three big jars. At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and I have done all of these things at your command. Answer me, O Lord. Answer me so that these people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. And then fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil. It also licked up the water in the trench. That's, that's pretty hot fire. And when all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah commanded them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Don't, don't let anyone get away. They seized them, and, and Elijah had them brought down to the Kishon Valley 
and slaughtered every one of them right there. Wow. You wouldn't think that we would have to have something like this occur in our modern society to believe that God is God. In this passage, we learn that when the odds are against you, serving with loyalty, even when there's certain danger or even grave danger around you, God demands that those he saves serve him with loyalty no matter what circumstances they face. And our story proves that not only was Elijah loyal, he was loyal with confidence before the Lord. He was determined to be confident in the Lord. And loyal to God's kingdom, loyal to God's commands, no matter what he faced, including being alone in the circumstance and standing in the midst of adversity. Beth and I have been watching this TV show called Is It Cake? Has anybody seen that? Pretty interesting. I can't hardly stand the host. He drives me insane. But, I, but some of these cakes are like, they're impressive. I mean, you can't. I, I'm, I'm going, I'm, and I sometimes got to get to the TV and go like this. Which one's cake and which one isn't, you know. And so in the show, the bakers are shown a series of items, but one of them is, usually a, or is actually a cake, and they pick which one it is, and then they get to bake a cake and make it look like an item that they, or item that they, are, they have options to pick these items, and they have to make their cake look like these items. And then other judges, three judges come in, and they have to pick which one's the cake and which of the other three or four are not. It's pretty cool to watch. And so they put their creation in a lineup against items that aren't cake, and they have to try to fool these people. And this past week, a lady picked a chess set. And I thought, how in the world is she going to do that? Because it was this big, I mean, it was a big base ornate with all these pieces on it. And I'm, she's got to make every one of those pieces. You know, she got to, right? I, listen, I like to cook, I like to bake, but I, I couldn't do that. Right? I couldn't do it. But these people are good. And so she, she started to make it. She completed it. It looked just like the real chess sets that were on the show. They're all different, you know, but they were all similar in structure. The only problem was one of them was cake. The replica made from cake looked just like a chess set, but you know and I know that it wouldn't last like the real thing, and it certainly wouldn't hold if you, if you actually tried to play chess with it. Would it? First of all, the modeling chalk at the piece would start to melt. It, 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 would, it, it would start to, you know, you would know. It would be bad. And I don't think that's an ideal thing to take to a chess tournament, do you? When paired next to the real thing, the cake is going to lose, isn't it? Because it's not made to play chess or whatever. It is made to be a cake, made to eat. It wasn't made to fool people, really, and it only would for a short period of time. But at that moment, the, the judges rarely choose the right one because they're that good. And I think we oftentimes follow gods that are not the true God. Maybe not this false god, Baal, but gods that we make up. And when these gods that we choose are pitted against God Almighty, what they are and what we've called them or how much we like them absolutely will not matter. They will not stand up because in the end God is God and others aren't even close. Now, as I begin to think about that, I started thinking about the sports realm and, and I realized that there's a thing, we're in this thing called the pregame show. The pregame show, friends, is an introduction. Before every big game, in whatever sport it is, there's usually a pregame show, and the pregame show is, is packed with facts, stats, interviews, and speculation. It builds the hype leading up to the big game. In other words, we can predict certain things by laying out the facts that we have, by looking at the stats that we've shown, things we know, things of the past, and then predictions based on our best guess of what we think is going to happen or occur. It's all set up for the big game. It's a preparation to watch what unfolds. It's a time for individuals and teens to prepare and focus on this one big event that's about to come. Now, here in our story, we pick up in verse 20 where we find Elijah 
setting up for a big showdown. The first thing the readers see is Elijah's confidence. I suspect that this was a serious challenge for Elijah for various reasons. And I, I suspect that you picked up on that as we're reading the story. Several things here. He's alone, for one. What if God doesn't come through? What if? I mean, he has already shown in the past that he was just a little bit afraid. We've seen that he wasn't all that confident in his own ability. He wasn't all that sure of what God was going to do. He, he's been filled with self-pity and self-preservation several times leading up to this. In fact, truth be known, he really wanted to be let out of the game. He wanted God to allow him to step off the team, not play at all. He'd had some very challenging situations that he had gone through recently, and quite honestly, he seemed to have more questions than he had answers to. Is this sounding familiar to you? But notice in Elijah, and for sure in our own lives, that oftentimes God will take us through a challenging situation or a season, per se, uh, to prepare us for an upcoming event that's going to end in a tremendous victory if we will let God work. God, God's always about that. And yet, my friends, the victory cannot come unless our faith is strong. Our confidence in God is steadfast. We have to trust Him. We have to resolve to follow Him and be obedient. Get this, no matter what. You can't tell God, but the circumstances. God doesn't care about the circumstances. He's God. We care about the circumstances. God doesn't. And when we do this, God will reward our faith and trust in him with tremendous things. I, I, I believe that. And yet, we must prepare for situations and events before they occur. Are you following me so far? We don't always know that things are coming. You know it, I know it, you know, you try to, and, and here's the thing, no matter how prepared you try to be, you sometimes never are. Sometimes we know what's coming, but there's going to be some things that you can never prepare for, some things you couldn't possibly have known are coming, and even if you did, there isn't a lot you can really do about it, it's still coming. When someone says, a hurricane's coming, well, we're not going to stop it, right? But that doesn't mean you, you don't prepare. Agreed? Let me explain. Perhaps you can't physically do anything or stop it from coming. Jimmy Carter made a big blunder once. We needed rain. Midwest was not producing any crops. And scientists told him they think they could help. And so, those of you alive remember that he had NASA and some scientists Seed the clouds to try to give us rain. And you know where that went. And then we had flooding that killed people. Who remembers that? It was horrible. You don't remember that? That was horrible. Who, who was alive back in the late 60s and early 70s? Would you, did you live in that cloud? Listen, this happened. Who remembers it actually happened? Jimmy does. Bob does. A few of you do. Listen, I can't see all of you guys, but... Okay, so it really actually happened. It was a bad deal. But here's the thing, and this is the key. You can prepare spiritually for whatever. If NASA or science tells us, I mean, who, who watched the movie Armageddon? Has anybody seen that? Nobody on earth could hide from this asteroid that was coming toward the earth. And so they devised this massive plan to go up and put some uh, well drillers, some, you know, some uh, oil drillers on this rock that's coming toward the earth as astronauts, drill a hole in it, put a nuke down it, and blow it up so it would go in half and we wouldn't get crushed. And, you know, it was iffy whether they are going to make it or not. Well, you know, it was an entertaining movie. But the fact of the matter is, he said, no one on earth can hide from it. And I suspect that's always a possibility. And, and here's the deal. Maybe we couldn't prepare for something we couldn't stop, but everybody at that moment had better start preparing spiritually. Yes? Okay. And that's what we have to do. Elijah prepared spiritually. 
so that he could perform physically, mentally, and emotionally. You see, the spiritual is what strengthens the other things. The spiritual is like the glue. It's what molds the other things. It keeps them together. This is how we look, we think, we act, we believe. And that, friends, is exactly like Jesus. That's what the spiritual is. The spiritual part of ourselves is the God part that lives within us. The Word of God tells us that Jesus is an exact representation of the Father. And that the Spirit of Jesus is living within us. And if we're surrendered and obedient to it, then we too will be the exact representation of the Father. In fact, we're expected to be. Does the Bible tell us that? That is and should be the desire of every Christian on the face of the planet. Regardless of what, whether you think you can or you can't. Let me ask you a question. Jesus knew what was going to happen as he prepared for the cross, didn't he? And he also knew the horror of what he would face before he even got to the cross, didn't he? Do you really think he would have gone or could have gone through all of that without his spiritual confidence in the Father? Clearly, the, the, the dialogue between him and the Father proves that. Do you think he could have faced what he did and even the things he didn't know in his humanness without preparing spiritually? Yes, I realize that Jesus knew all things. I'm not suggesting he didn't. He knew what was coming for sure. But since he hadn't gone through it yet in his human self, I don't believe he knew every in and out of the suffering until he experienced it. None of us do. Yet how we prepare spiritually for the things we know are coming, and even for the ones we don't know are coming, will determine much of the outcome. And if not the outcome itself, it will determine our ability to deal with whatever the outcome is. You understand that? And I think what a tremendous opportunity that we have here. And you're thinking, wait a minute, that's not an opportunity. Well, it is, actually. And if we're going to be loyal to God in our service, just as Jesus certainly was, then we're going to have to prepare for it just as he did. And our preparation is going to have to be more spiritual than it is anything else. And yet I think we do it backwards. I think we prepare physically and then emotionally, and then we throw in the spiritual when we have time for it. How am I doing so far? Now, this is a huge factor, and we're going to have to change some things in our lives in order to resolve to do it, you know, and then to experience it. The spiritual part of ourselves has to be the biggest part, my friends, of our relationship with God, and if it isn't, then I question your relationship with God. I do because the Bible does. I do because Christ did. I do because the Father does. And more than that, the Spirit does because it's in you. You understand that? It's time the church began sacrificing some things in our physical lives to practice the spiritual that is demanded of us in Christ Jesus. You see, we're in the pregame show right now, whether we realize it or not. Secondly, we have to let people see God in action. You see, God has to be seen rather than us being seen. Oh. Should I repeat that? We have to allow God to be seen rather than us be being seen. In verse 21, we notice division among the people. You, can you see them in that crowd looking at each other? What are you going to do? I don't know. What are you going to do? Huh? Division is there because of what they believe, what they think they know, and because of what they absolutely don't know. Isn't that why division is there in the first place? Isn't that why division is in the world today? Isn't that why division is in the church today? Based on what we know, what we think we know, and what we absolutely don't know. You, friends, if you're lucid, 
You're going to have a real difficult time convincing anybody that that's not true. That's where division comes from. Mostly because of what we think we know. That's where division comes from in the church. And just like many of us today, individuals are challenged when having to make a choice between serving God or serving a false God. Now, maybe we don't serve a God like this, like a, a, an Asherah pole or, or a trinket or, or whatever it is, but we serve the gods in our lives. Covetousness, pride, arrogance, huh? Money. Stuff, popularity, power, you name it. It can be a God to you. And let's face it, it is and has been. Huh. And sometimes that includes ourselves. That's, that's a hard one to admit. But you can be a God unto yourself when you think that much of yourself. And we're being taught today that we should. Aren't we? Jesus tells us in Matthew 6, 24 that we cannot serve two masters. We'll either love one and despise the other or we'll hold on to one and hate the other. Jesus himself said that. Now, I'm not sure about you, but I see rampant confusion and division in the church today, among church believers, among church goers today. I see rampant division. Now, I can understand the division and confusion in society around us. That I can at least understand. I can, I can put a handle on that. I understand why. Because in society where you put more emphasis on yourself and everybody does, that's inevitable. You're going to see division. But in the church? One entire Protestant denomination is about to split completely. Now, of course, they put it off for two years. So they, so they, they don't have to make hard decisions. I don't know. I've never understood that. Have you understood that, Pastor Bob? But it's about to happen. And it's going to happen. It's happening, anyway. it's happening anyway. An entire denomination is going to split over one issue alone, pretty much. One alone. And you know why? Because Christians can't agree on what the Word of God says and what it means. Well, no wonder the world doesn't want any part of us. Why should they? This is just one instance, but it's happening throughout the church. Some of it is huge disagreements, and some of them are, you know, more subtle. But the chasm is there. It, it, you can't deny that it's there. The division is there, and because it is, confusion is growing, even in the church. Did you hear what I said? Confusion is growing in the church. Now, I want you to hold on to that thought, because I'm going to show you some things that's going to blow your mind. Because now, more than ever, many Christians are asked their opinion about which side is correct and which are wrong. And you know what they're saying more than anything? I just don't know what to believe. In the church, the Word of God is right here. We've got a Savior that redeemed us and ascended to heaven right next to the Father. He put His Spirit in us, and we're saying, I just don't know what to believe. Color me confused, if you want. Does that make any sense to anyone in this room today? Anybody listening online? Anybody? Does that make any sense I just don't know what to believe? Are you saved? Because if you're saved, you know what to believe. Don't you? Let me ask you something. Does God sow seeds of doubt 
Does God sow seeds of confusion? Does he sow seeds of division? Every Christian ought to be able to answer those questions and answer them correctly. Why? Because the word of God says he does not. James 1, 5 to 8. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe, and get this, not doubt. Because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. And yet they do. Because, he says, such a person is double-minded and unstable in everything they do. James just described people in the church. Further, listen to the Apostle John in 1 John 4.1. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Why? Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. In other words, we have false prophets in the church among us. I have friends that go to other churches who I believe are false prophets. Because they, A, don't know what to believe, or they haven't tested the spirits and have jumped on this bandwagon of things that the Word of God says, this you shall not do. And they don't know what to think about that. Friends, that's a false prophet. Anybody who looks at the Word of God, and, and the Bible says, does not do what it says, well, the love of the Father cannot be in him. That's what it says. That means the Spirit of God is not in you, which means you are, get this, not saved. I don't get to make that decision, but that's what it looks like to me. That's what it looks like to anybody who knows what that means. God's going to determine, and I think a lot of people are going to be sorely disappointed. And it's going to be a tragedy. We're heading to that. We're in a pregame show right now. What happens when we're in the event? Now what? Hmm. And finally, the Apostle Paul slams the door on this thing of confusion in the church. He says in 1 Corinthians 14, 33, For God is not a God of confusion, but a God of peace. Slams the door. You see, friends, when we surrender completely to God as individuals and we surrender as churches, two things ultimately will happen. And you better write these things down. Write them in here. Write them on your heart. And know what I'm talking about here because this is biblical 100%. Two things will happen. Ultimately, when you surrender completely to God. One, we are so completely confident in the Lord that we do not doubt Him at all. Which means we don't doubt His Word. And because we don't doubt His Word, there's no confusion about what it says. How's about that? Anybody with me here? We won't have any difficulty determining where the spirits come from and who is a false prophet. It may hurt because you're going to have to lose some friendships over it. Well, whoop-de-doo. I mean, I, I, I think that. Well, whoop-de-doo. If nothing else, my friends are going to have to wonder why I dropped them as a friend. And I can tell them, well, because I believe you to be a false prophet. What? Well, don't you believe or don't you not say you don't know what to do or you don't want to believe? And then the Word of God say this? And if nothing else, the... the, the the wheels are going to be turning in here. And, you, and then you know what I'm going to do? Offer them salvation right there. And if they balk at me and tell me I'm already saved, I'm going to say, really, tell God that. Tell God you're saved and you don't know what to believe. Tell God you're saved and you don't agree with what he says here. How, how do you equate those things? Well, you can't. And they're going to say, well, it's not that simple. It isn't. God says it is. It will separate the false prophets from the true believers. Real quick. 
These are hard choices we all have to make. Listen, if I'm wrong, say so. If the word of God is wrong, if I've misinterpreted it, please say so. I, I don't think you can. You see, we won't have difficulties, friends. And it won't be difficult for us to determine what is of God and what isn't of God. It's pretty simple. Now, I've been doing this quite a while. Some of you have been doing it a little longer, and some of you a little less longer. But I'll bet you, every one of you would say that when you read the Word of God, you know what it says, you know what it means, and you know what that means to you. Am I wrong? Who believes that the Word of God is what it says it is? Who believes that God is who He says He is? Who believes that God, when He says things, is going to do what He said He will do? Okay. So what are we talking about here? Why the confusion? Why the difficulty of telling your friends, what are you doing here? What's going on? The Word of God doesn't lie. And if you don't believe what it says, that's what you're saying. You're saying it's a lie. And when we do that, there's not going to be any doubt or confusion in us. That's the first thing that's going to happen. You know what the second thing is? When you stand on it, and you call people out, and you do these things, well, here's what's going to happen. People will see God and not you. And isn't that the goal of every Christian? So the real question posed to us by the Lord himself is, when are you going to start on the journey to allowing this to happen in your life? When are you finally going to step out of your comfort zone, as Elijah did, and say, you know what? This isn't working for me. I can't live in a world and amongst other Christians from other churches or whatever, even if it's in your own church, who believe things that are not in the Word of God or against the Word of God and not say something about it. I can't do it anymore. More to come on that with me. But I want you to see something. It's difficult to let God be seen when we want ourselves to be seen. It really is. I, I admit that it is, okay? But because of Elijah's passion and his love for people, he decided to let those people see God and not him. That's, that's, that's what he did. And so all of a sudden, what could happen to him didn't matter anymore. What he might be putting himself into didn't matter anymore. He forgot about himself, concentrated on him, and worshiped him through his obedience. We sing that chorus like it's a cliche. Elijah put it into practice, and that's exactly all God is asking us to do, is put our belief into practice. You see, sometimes in our lives, we have to allow God to use us as a living testimony for others to see the ability of God. Are you getting this to me? You are paying attention, right? You are grasping, and you are understanding. Anybody in here should be able to understand that. It doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian. It doesn't matter how much theology you understand, how long you've been saved. None of that matters. You can get, everybody can get this. You see, this actually allows God to use us so that others may be able to see him through us in order to increase their faith and then trust in him. We all had to go through it, and that's what these others need to do as well. Now, it's pretty difficult, I think, to tell people to surrender to God and then trust Him when you won't. I mean, that, that's like a false testimony right there. And you know where that takes you. I mean, amen? So what would it take for you today to be so completely in the Lord your God? to be so completely surrendered to Him that others flock to Him based on your performance in your spiritual life. And see the so completely obvious trust and confidence that you have in God. You know what I think about that? Wow. And then wow indeed. That, that's, that's, that's the question everybody, everybody's being posed right now. You can't run and hide from it. You can't block it out. You have, you're faced with it right now because God's asking you. 
Now remember, as we said just a few minutes ago, we must be preparing every day like it's the Super Bowl and not just any old game. Every day is, is the Super Bowl because God could return any moment. The big event <laughs> is on its way. Anybody with me here? It's on its way. And none of us knows when. But I suspect it's pretty soon. The days of just another game are long gone. We've, we've marched that far into this thing. We're about to be in the biggest game of our lives. Indeed, of all time. You don't have a front row seat. You're a player on the team. <laughs> you're a participant. Unless you're not. You're a player on the greatest team in history. The greatest team there will ever be. It has been said that the 1985 Chicago Bears might have been the greatest team in the history of the NFL. I don't know if that's true or not. I'm a Bear fan, so I like to think maybe. But there's too many variables of, you know, different things. Athletes of today, the, the nature of the game, all sorts of different things. I really don't know what would happen. That's hypothetical, just like the pregame is. But I know where this game is going. I know what this battle is. I know where this is, where this is going down. We're on the greatest team in the history of humankind. That's a fact. Now, I know you sometimes don't feel like you're on that team or feel like you're the best team, especially when you go through the difficulties of life. And, you know, society is becoming more evil than it ever has been before. So it's easy to feel that way. You see, God knew this would happen, and that's why there's something else. Here's another thing you got to grasp. Size doesn't really matter. It typically does to us as humans, but it really doesn't when it comes to God's kingdom. God's proven that time and again through Scripture, hasn't he? In fact, I can think of at least once where God told him to reduce the force. <laughs> he didn't need that many. When you got God on your team, it doesn't really matter how big you are, how many. Amen? And I think that's what Elijah must have been feeling right now. He, he saw all these others, and he, he, he seemed to be alone, but he, he, he wasn't, though. Now, was he? He wasn't alone. You see, there has always been strength in numbers. I, I get that. And even though this might be true, we have to break down why this is true. For one, there can be physical strength in numbers. I don't deny that. Anybody? And there's the moral part of it, too. You get moral support when there's more of you. Agreed? Let's face it. Every task is easier to face when there's more than one person facing the task. This way, the battle, the struggle, or the game is shared, and the strengths are combined. Amen? But more than that, there's this psychological and emotional strength that comes in the numbers as well. It gives us much more confidence, you know, uh, and to know that we don't face whatever it is all by ourselves. Everybody wants to know that. We would all feel better about an adversary if we had someone else with us. Huh? In the beginning of verse 22, Elijah stood by himself as a prophet of the Lord. He stood against Baal's prophets. Something in happens here and, and sometimes in our lives we may be the only one standing for the Lord now many of you have run across this in your jobs in your school perhaps or even in your family gatherings forcing you to ask God something am I the only one who really believes in you Elijah said I'm the last one left And maybe someday you will be. But if, you, if you're serving him, is that really going to matter? I must confess to you that sometimes I feel as if I'm the only pastor in my circle willing to just tell the truth for what it is. He's seen it. They've been against me, haven't they? Not all of them. Some of them don't want to say and others are like, oh, yeah. And all I tell them is, 
show me biblically, and nobody ever tries. Listen, this isn't about me. This is about doing what's right. I feel like, God, am I the only one that's not afraid to offend people? See, I don't want to offend people just to throw it in their face. I want to stand up for the truth, and God's put me in a position to have this understanding and knowledge. He's called me to be his pastor, and I have responsibility to that. And I, I can't, I can't, no matter the circumstances, water it down, change it, ignore it, and just make everybody feel hunky-dory. I can't. I won't. God won't let me. And I don't know how they do. And I'm not, I don't have anybody in mind. And I'm not being accusatory. But we cannot allow the fear of people alone make us change our service to God. Why? Because the Bible says that the truth will offend people. Listen to the scripture which cannot be in dispute. Are you ready for this? This is why I said I need you to pay attention. Romans 1.20. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. Now, if God says it's been clearly seen, then it has. And then he says, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. If God says society is without excuse, then it is. It doesn't matter what we say, the what ifs, the buts, that. It doesn't matter. If God says that his hand has been seen from the beginning of time, then it has. And if we haven't seen it, that's our problem. No matter who we are. And I don't care about the people in the Amazon that's never had contact with anybody else. God has a way of making people see him regardless of what we do or don't do. There are no excuses here. Paul says there aren't. And who put that in Paul's heart and mind? Well, God did. That's God's word. It always has been. John 3, 19 to 20, or 21. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness because of light. Instead of light, because their deeds were evil. Lights come into the world. But men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. They wanted to do what they wanted to do. Which is why we believe what we want to believe. Amen? This is where it's all manifest right there. John 6, 53 to 59. This is a tremendously amazing story. You have to, you have to grasp this. This is a dialogue between Jesus and uh, his 12 disciples and the other disciples that jumped on the bandwagon. They're all around him right now. At one time, Jesus had 70-plus disciples. Did you know that? That's, that's the amount that the Bible records, it, but there may have been more, but that's what the Bible records. So here's what happens. Jesus said to them, okay, this is Jesus, said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. Now, we ought to take note of that. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of my Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. In other words, you have to have Jesus Christ. You have to accept him. You have to love him. You have to obey his commands or you are not saved. Period. It isn't just about getting saved because you accept that he's Christ. You have to obey his commands because the Bible says if you don't obey his commands, then the love of the father is not in you. Now, he goes on, okay, John 6, 61 to 64, I moved around a little bit. But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples, all of them, were grumbling about this, he said to them, do you take offense at this? In other words, do you take offense at the truth? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? 
Is it the Spirit who gives life? The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. His disciples. Some of you, he wasn't talking to the crowds. He was talking to the 70 or so that we know of disciples standing around him. Some of them self-made disciples, but they followed him, see. And they didn't believe. So here's what happened. As soon as he began to, they, at first they loved what he was saying. And all of a sudden, they're like, watch what happens. John 6, 66 to 67. Oh, you ready for this? This is going to bring it home right here. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? <laughs> what does this mean to us? Clearly, at the beginning when Jesus was healing people, telling them about eternal life and all the wonderful things. Well, everybody wanted him. But when he began to speak the truth of the cost of being a disciple, the changes that were going to be necessary in their lives, the friendships they were going to lose, having to stand alone, the attacks from the evil one, being an outcast, being persecuted, being ridiculed, being made fun at, being in the minority, having people dislike you, disown you, even hate you. Remember he said, well, you know, the world's going to hate you because it first hated me. See, when he started talking about those things, The difficult times we'd have to endure, well, many left him. And aren't they? Aren't many leaving him today when they're faced with this? You see, they couldn't handle the truth. It offended them. And I'm certain the truth has offended people in the church today, which is why they pick and choose what they believe and practice and then what they don't. They pick and choose what they want to believe and practice, and what they don't. That's leaving them. It's leaving them. Just because you call yourself a Christian doesn't make it so. You see, people are offended by the truth because of its very nature. It is exclusive, and it is absolute. The truth is not relative. It never has been. It's never been relative. You see, we want the truth to be relative. That way we can change it whenever we feel like it. The absolute nature of truth means that it does not depend on, nor is it changed by, people's opinions, no matter who they are. For example, if someone says, well, there is no God, well, that doesn't really affect the existence of God now, does it? Does it? You see, truth is also exclusive, meaning that it is narrow because it excludes anything contrary to it. Unfortunately, in the spiritual world, some people view the narrow nature of truth as narrow-mindedness. That might be the most important statement I made all day. So it begs an answer to the question, which is truly enlightened then? Is it God or is it our society? They say it's narrow-minded. God says it's a narrow gate. Wow. Woo! Brother, I'll tell you what. It is heated up in here. You see, the unbelieving society is rapidly becoming larger in stature and numbers than the believers in God. That's true. And yet, because God is with us, I think, who can be against us? With God, we're never alone. Elijah was put in that situation because God could trust him. Every one of us must ask ourselves, can God trust me? Do we have the boldness and the confidence to stand against people who don't believe like we believe and still remain strong in our resolve to stand for the right? Can we have compassion for others in spite of their hatred for us and because of their ignorance? Although Elijah saw the foolishness and falsehood in their belief system and their degradation toward God, I would dare say, he still did not allow that to make him angry. Instead, he saw an opportunity for God to be God and show up. 
And just because the people looked holy and said they were holy doesn't mean they were holy. All the prophets of Baal were dressed in their priestly garments. They played the part. They acted like holy men. They talked like holy men. They began crying out to their false god, and you know what happened. Nada. Nothing. Zilcho. Zippo. You see, you can't just look the part. You have to be connected to the one and true God. Size doesn't really matter that much. Speed, endurance, they don't read that much. Giftedness, athleticism, it doesn't mean anything. Two thousand seven. I was a younger man. Played on a softball team, Holman Street Wesleyan Church. <laughs> My son's got his head down. <laughs> he knows what's coming. This team of guys was old. We weren't particularly speedy. We weren't the best athletes, but we won this tournament. And when we decided we were going to get in the Wesleyan tournament in 2007, there was a group of teenagers and college students in this church. And they decided, well, we think we'd like to have a team too. Can't we have a second team? I said, sure you can. And so they did. And the entire time leading up to this tournament, the trash talking began. Well, we're, you know, we're just going to smoke you old guys. We're going to, you know. They wouldn't shut up. And my sons were all part of it. And I just said, you know, you know. And the game was over at the first pitch. I'm not kidding you. I think the score says here 20 to 3, and it wasn't the young guys. <laughs> and to tell you the truth, if I remember that game, it was five innings, and we stopped it. And they only scored those three runs at the end of the game. It was a joke from the beginning. And here's the thing. I don't want to lord over. I, that's not, but the fact of the matter is you don't have to be the biggest, the strongest, the best athlete. You don't have to be the smartest. You don't have to be any of those things. None of that matters. Now, you can say, well, that's got nothing to do with God. No, it doesn't. But here's the thing. We were together. We were experienced. We'd played together a long time. We were confident in our abilities. We knew how to play the game, and we knew how to play. Now, is it true that if we played them ten times, they might have won nine? I don't know. But this is the only one that mattered. <laughs> right? So here's the thing. Here's what, here's, here's, here's what this all goes. Guys, size doesn't matter. How big they are, how brilliant they are, how many of them there are, what they can do, what their science says, none of that matters. Because in here, in here, if God's with you, who's going to be against you? Which leads me to my last point, we're set up for victory. Now, I know we're, we're late, but here's the deal. You have to follow God's direction. In verses 31 to 40, we learn the importance of following directions. Elijah gave specific instructions on how to set up the altar many times, Things don't have to make sense. Or see, things may seem repetitive, but there is a purpose in everything that we do for God. And friends, I can tell you that I do not always understand what God is doing. But I've learned that I don't have to understand. I've learned that if I'm obedient, I will eventually see what God is up to, even if it's on the other side. Amen? I'm sure it seemed crazy and unnecessary to some people as Elijah kept pouring water, water on the altar, the sacrifice, and on the wood. How many times have we not done what God asked because it just didn't make sense? How many times did we not do what our parents asked because it didn't make sense? And how often have we thought that our supervisor or even our pastor was completely outside his or her mind? <laughs> and I think about how much heartache and pain we could have avoided for ourselves. How much time we wasted just trying to do things our way simply because the way of those appointed over us just didn't make sense. And as our worship team comes, and I want them to keep listening because this is important. God always has your best interest in his heart. 
You need to understand that. If you don't take anything else away from this today, God always has your best interest at heart. Thankfully, Elijah wasn't hard-headed like modern Christians seem to be. But we can learn something from all of this. And as I stated earlier, it doesn't even have to make sense. In fact, it probably won't. And after Elijah fulfilled his obligation of setting up the offering, God did what Forrest Gump said. God showed up. We not only find that God showed up, but the people turned from Baal or they turned back to the Lord. Either they never had him and believed or they had him left and came right back. Why? Because he's God. And he proved it right there. He proved it to you, friends, when he saved you. You don't have to wonder. You shouldn't wonder. You can know today that you are saved. You know that you know that you know. And if you doubt it, then you better come here right now. Do not pass go. Don't collect any amount of money. Right here. Because God wants to save you if you're not. If there's any doubt in your mind, get her done. Now. Don't wait. Don't put it off. Don't screw around. And if you've slipped away from God a little bit and you're not what you used to be with him, you know what? What God's doing? Come on. Come on back. I'm right here. I'm waiting. It's for you. What we can learn from all this is if we're obedient to the process, God will be faithful in the battle. Amen? You've heard the cliche, well, this was set up for failure. With God, this is a great setup for victory. With God, we're set up for victory even when it doesn't seem like the team's all that strong. You know, it's often been asked, whom will you really trust? Oftentimes, while we're serving people, we'll be tempted to change our beliefs or worse, we'll doubt our faith. I know that because I've seen it and maybe it's even been me a time or two. But we have to remember that God has already given us this victory through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The news is reporting now, friends, and this, 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 this breaks my heart. That there are Ukrainians in the country now that don't really care what flag flies over them. They just want the war to end. But what, they, what they don't understand is they will lose their freedom. It will be gone. If Putin takes over, it's gone. They should really care what flag flies. And we should care who we serve. We should care. Don't give that up. Don't let the devil win. Don't let society push upon you. This evil stuff and these evil thoughts and these wrong things. It should matter to you what flag flies. And as long as, well, it's not in here. Our flag flies. We're free until it doesn't. And if God is our God, it will fly. Because that's what we're based on. Friends, serve the Lord with loyalty. Serve Him no matter what. Thanks for listening to the Free Life Community Church Podcast. For more great biblically sound teaching, visit freelifecc.com.